Into the West, a Middle Earth SVG podcast where we discuss the competitive side of the game. I'm Charles, and with me are Richard, Ian, and Alexander. This is a special double episode where we will be covering Elendil and Gilgalad. And in our open topic, we will be discussing and breaking down some of the changes that we would like to see in the game, perhaps in a new edition. Uh, so let's start off with the first profile, Elendil, Hiking of Gondor, and Arnor. But there were some who resisted. A last alliance of men and elves marched against the armies of Mordor, and on the slopes of Mount Doom, they fought for the freedom of Middle-earth. So Elendil is from the Numenor army list. He has the Numenor man infantry and hero keywords. He's a hero legend. And he's move six, fight seven, uh, strength five, defense seven, three attacks, three wounds, courage six, three might, three will, one fate. He's base 185 points. And he comes with heavy armor and Narsil. Narsil is a master forge hand and a half sword. And it allows him to call a hero combat each turn without expending might. He has four heroic actions, heroic strike, heroic strength, heroic defense, and heroic challenge. And he has two war gear options, a horse for 10 points and a shield for five points. And he has two special rules. One is hiking of Arnor and Gondor, which uh, gives him a stand fast 12 inches and unbending resolve, which effectively Elendil always counts as having the fortified spirit magical power. And even when his will is zero, this is an effect. So it means that he gets to roll two dice to resist any spell that's cast on him. So I think I've seen Elendil on the table quite a bit, especially at the beginning of this new edition. He got a pretty significant buff, and I know in the Isildur episode we kind of compared these two Numenor heroes, but he is essentially like the combat hero that a good player would want in a list. Thoughts on this? I know that a few of you guys have used them before. Well, I... (laughs) I don't think I ever realized he had heroic defense. Because, like, you you almost never use it. He's just, like, the offensive potential of this guy is absolutely insane. Especially when he's mounted on the horse. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that you give him both the horse and the shield just every single time. He's, like, the original combat hero. And I, I think, yeah... Like you said, Charles, I played him a lot at the beginning of this edition, and by a lot, I mean Ian every time. Every time I played him for the first little bit, the edition, it was Ian. And he is just, he's so impossible to stop. He's essentially, like, two-handed, burly, has all the right heroic actions. He's expensive, so it's a big investment, but I haven't seen once yet, especially so long as you give him the horse, where he hasn't been worth it. He's one of those heroes where he's a ton, but he actually pays off, I think, more times than not. So it's uh, pretty pretty good. I, I played a Last Lions list, and that will be something that I uh, bring for today's episode. I think he's a really, really great hero, and a lot of his special rules work really well together. I think the biggest one being the Fortify Spirit. So that's an extremely rare feature for a big hero like this. I think the only other one off the top of my mind is uh, Glorfindel. And to be honest, this is huge, especially with the change to Black Dart. 
So Fortify Spirit covers the whole model. So he's one of the only heroes now, him and Glorfindel, that can protect their horses against Black Dart. Yeah, and generally when you have a big hero like this, a big combat hero, your main worry is offensive magic. Just having that always, the security of having always two dice to resist, you're basically taking away one of his main weaknesses. He also, I find that he's good in all points levels. Um, at the beginning of the edition, when Kirdan was uh, Hero Fortitude, I saw like a number of lists that podiumed in North America uh, at low points, 500 points, where they just took Elendil and Kirdan. And just having those, like, Kirdan is the defensive one with the auras, and the Elendil just did all the killing. And, and he's good at high points, too, where there are bigger casters, just because of the fortified spirit. So I'd say that he's, being a hero of legend with 18 troop slots, he's usually enough at low points to just take him along with one other hero. So I'd say that he's really versatile in the sense that you can kind of plug him in at all points levels, even though he is so expensive. So he's surprisingly versatile. He's just so crazy because his fight seven and his like strength five with plus one to wound and heroic combat just means like he has so much flexibility. Like a lot of these heroes, I tend to find that more specialized in killing troops or killing heroes. The thing with Elendil is it's really hard to predict what he's going to do if you're the opponent because he honestly can do both. Like if he's within striking of most heroes, you're just in danger of dying with the bulging strategy. But, you know, if you do strike up, then he can just choose to go into um, some troops. I, I remember, you know, Alex must have forgotten, but I remember playing him a few games with Elendil and against his Mordor. And I, I just remember Elendil going several games consistently, taking out a whole warband of like Moranins and, and Black Numenorians and, and I think even one time killing the Undying on Felbeast. So, yeah, just the flexibility is insane. I'm not going to comment. Actually, I am. Uh, Elendil, especially with Kyrdan, I found early in the edition, the synergy between a spell like Enchanted Blades and what Elendil could do. Yeah, he, you put those two together in range, and it was like he'd just start wiping out a warband at a time. It's like a, a hot knife through butter. Troops don't stand a chance. It's mean. And the only things I find that can stop him are, like, multiple spellcasters or even bigger heroes. And with either of those, you're having to pay usually more than Elendil's base cost just to shut him down. And when you shut him down, normally a hero has, you know, they've either got Last Alliance and they've got a big elven hero, or they've got a Sealdor who then just picks it up and does it for them. He pretty much does it all. So I'm going to give him like a solid nine, maybe even nine and a half. I think he's, yeah, deserving of top notch marks. But I think when it comes to Elendil and Gilgalad, as we talk about later, the Alliance Matrix is not as friendly to these heroes. And I think it's nice that one of their green allies is Rivendell, but uh, there's not many other choices where you can throw him in. So I think that probably is my biggest issue with him. In a vacuum, he is really, really top-notch. So i probably give him an 8.5. Yeah, I agree with everything you said so far. I think he's at a 9. 
I usually would take marks off for limitations in the alliance matrix, but since you kind of get everything that you you need that Numenor doesn't have in Rivendell, it's kind of forgivable. Basically, if you're going to run Numenor, I would want to take him. So I, I think I think a nine is where I'm sitting at. So I was just looking at uh, the FAQ and stuff, and I don't see anything specifically saying he can't ally with anybody. Like, you know how Gil-Galad has those restrictions? Is it? No, no, he doesn't have that restriction. Just Numenor in general has yeah. limited allies. Okay. I wasn't sure if I was misremembering that. But, I mean, even then, you still have, like, all, all the elves and then Fangorn and uh, and Eagles, as we we talked about previously in an episode. So, so it's not terrible unless you want to go into red alliances and then the sky's the limit. Hmm. Well, you still could do a weird thing where you have him and Aragorn together. <laughs> That'd be weird, though. As long uh, as Aragorn and Cormier aren't together, anything else is allowed. <laughs> exactly. I'm finally glad you're getting it, Charles. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say. Like you guys have covered him pretty well. He's he's a huge bee stick, and he does it amazingly well. It's hard to stop him once he gets into combat. As long as he can get into combat and do those heroic combats, he can be mobile. So it, it, it's hard to shut him down and hard to like trap him and stop him. I remember in like one of the games that I played against Richard, I had like a weird alliance going on. But I managed to, like, surround his warband with, like, Caliborn and, like, a whole bunch of guys, kill everybody else. And then because Elenia was his leader and I was out of might, he was just like, all right, I'll just shield you off for, like, five turns at fight seven with six dice. And, like, I just I couldn't kill him because I couldn't win a fight. It was so annoying. Like, he could be defensive, too, with that. It's just, ugh, it's crazy. As for, like, my score, I'm, I agree with you guys. I think it should be really high. He's probably one of the best combat models in the game, but he pays the points for it. But he also buffs troops, like he has the 12-inch standfast, and then there's like the Blood of Numenor special, which is in his troops thing, but it triggers off of him. So, I don't know, maybe like a nine and a half, like Alex said. I'm kind of feeling that. Because I wanted to give him a 10. That was immediately where I went to, but then, yeah, you brought up the Alliance Matrix, so maybe I guess that tips him down like a little bit. I don't think he is at a 10 because uh, in the Isildur episode, we did kind of agree that there are ways to play Numenor without him. So, you know, I think the list is better with him, but I don't think he's like absolutely necessary in every Numenor list. Okay, and then the second profile we'll be covering is Gilglad, High King of the Elves. And Gilglad is found in the Rivendell army list. He's based 170 points. He's a hero of legend as well. He's an elf, Rivendell, and infantry and hero keywords. And uh, he's move six, fight nine, strength four, defense seven, three attacks, three wounds, courage seven, three might, three will, one fate. And here it lists a restriction for him. If your force contains Gilgalad and either Arwen, the twins Eladan Elrhir, here, Lindir or Bilbo, then you will lose your army bonus. And you will be impossible allies with every other army. I think in the errata, this list was updated to uh, also include that if your army contains Gilgalad, then your only historical alliance with Numenor, and then your also convenient alliance with Lothlorien, 
Coles with Randall, Ants and Eagles, and then you're red with everyone else, I think. I got it up in front of me. So it's it's not even uh, uh, Thrandall's Halls. It's just okay. just Lothorian, Fangorn, Misty Mountains. That's it. Okay. Yeah. So essentially, when you take Gilgalad, it's almost like a legendary legion. It's it's really really restricted. Onto his war gear, he has uh, heavy armor and Aglos. Aglos is a elven made spear, and he also gets plus one to wound when he makes strikes with this weapon. Heroic actions. He has the same four as Elendil, Heroic Strike, Heroic Strength, Heroic Defense, Heroic Challenge. In addition, he also has Heroic Resolve. Uh, he has the same two uh, war gear options, Horse for 10 points and a Shield for 5 points. If your army includes Gilgalad, you can upgrade any number of High Elf Warriors in his Warband to become Kingsguard for one more point, and Kingsguard have a fight value of 6. Gilgalad has five special rules. He has Blood and Glory which means every time he kills a hero, he gets a might point back. He has Terror, he has Woodland Creature, he has High King of the Elves, which gives him a 12-inch standfast. In addition, elf heroes benefit from this standfast. And his last special rule is Lord of the West, which allows him to re-roll a single dice in the duel and to wound. Okay, so some similarities with Elendil, but he's slightly cheaper at 170 base, his stat line is kind of similar with the 3 my 301 fate. He has fight 9, though, instead of fight 7. So his fight is even higher, and we already talked about how good 7 was. Ian, would you like to go first this time? <laughs> I was just going to say, I think, I was, was it Richard was saying, like, he's, he's quite versatile with the land deal. With this guy, he's a lot more dedicated. He is a hero killer. Like, with the fight 9... The uh, blood and glory and, and terror to keep off other troops charging in once he's in there. He, he's like a dedicated hero killer. As for the heroic actions, I'll just touch on those again. Strike, love it. Strength, I don't know if he'll ever use it. Maybe. Defense, yeah, handy. Uh, resolve, you're never going to use it. And then challenge, you're never going to use it because no one will accept against him. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Well, I mean, you could use it if you want to make those deterrents for the enemy, but yeah, no one would be stupid enough to accept the challenge from him unless it's like a ball rug. I personally really like this hero, um, but biggest difference between him and Elendil, I would say, is the magic resistance, which I found as a big concern. There is a way around it in this list, which is if you take Lindir with him, but then you lose your army bonus and you basically have to go as a pure Rivendell list, or else you lose, you get all the negatives of having a red alliance. What are you guys' initial thoughts? Well, I guess with Lord of the West, with that extra reroll, he might be slightly better at winning combats, and then also his spear being Elven made. So he has like a little bit of an edge on Elendil in that sense. I'd say if you compare free hero combats with blood and glory i think free hero combats might be a little bit better i don't know if you guys agree because blood and glory you kind of have to go for specific targets to to regenerate the might points lost but i'd agree with that i think yeah the you know what you're getting with the free hero combat so the blood and glory it's going to be iffy every game right and you got to work for it the free hero combats is just one of those things that's always on so you don't really have to be too careful or too strategic about exactly where you place them in order to get it to work. It's just going to work every time. I think I actually prefer Elendil's profile slightly, just because Fight 7 and Fight 9, like Fight 9 is obviously so far up there that 
it's one of those things where a lot of times your opponent might not even call a heroic strike just because he's got to get all the way to 10 just to even have a shot. But fight seven is, is so high that beats almost everyone else anyways. So for me, sometimes that's a little bit of a wash. I prefer Lendil's hitting power, I think. Because in the end, I, I think with his free heroic combat, he probably hits a bit harder. But Gilglad has uh, Lord of the West. I think I still prefer Elendil's profile just a little bit. I probably have to disagree a bit. I think when it comes down to profile-to-profile comparison, to me it's quite obvious that Gilglad is a lot more underpriced if we're going pound-for-pound here. Like, if we're going stat-by-stat and rule-by-rule points-wise, he's 15 points cheaper base. So I think... Why he's so undercosted is because of the restriction. Like, honestly, I would be playing him way more if I could do some cheesy, you know, ally with Minas Tirith or Fiefdoms. Oh my god, that would be so good. But yeah, I think that's that's the main restriction here, that he's just so limited. You also have to look at the option to bring Kingsguard, because I don't know if that's undercosted as well. Just having fight six warriors for one more point. Mm. That's that's really good, though, right? Because, I mean, plus one fight for one point is, you can say, fair value. But that jump to add in a couple like to fight six, uh, I think, is a really, really strong, like versatile move. Because there's not a lot of troops that can reach the fight six in the game. Yeah, I think it's like the opposite of courage, because courage is like when you go from low low values, one up is worth more than if you're like already a high courage model going up in courage. So like if you think about like a warrior of Harad to a serpent guard, it's effectively one more point for one more fight, right? But if you go from like a high elf warrior to a king's guard, when we're going higher in fight, it depends what army you're fighting, obviously, but I think that it's more valuable to go up yeah. from five to six. Yeah, that's a good point. Because like the Lake Town Militia too, it's like fight two for fight three, okay, but... Yeah. <laughs> I'll be honest, I didn't even think of the Kingsguard upgrade in that comparison there, so I'd have to reassess that probably as well just because of the effect it has on his own warband. Going from five to six is is a pretty big deal. I mean, it's kind of like having... We've talked a lot about Caladrum Court Guard. And just how valuable having like two or three or four of those in an entire army is, especially when you're playing against another elf army, something where the five to six makes a big difference. Or if you're fighting like Urukai, where their heroes are all fight five. I can speak from experience playing a lot of evil armies that when you come up against something where your heroes essentially just stand there and really don't go anywhere, it's frustrating. Those kind of upgrades really change a game. I guess one more point. Him having Blood and Glory, I think, is really, really good. It fits well with the Rivendell list, because usually you're not going to get too many, too much might in this list. If you don't ally with Elendil and his free hero combats and all that, but uh, if you go up here, Rivendell list, usually you're in an 800 points match, you're going to struggle to get 10 might. And I think late game, he's, he's a really good source, because if he lasts the late game, no one is taking him out. Correct me if I'm wrong, but he's the only good model with Blood and Glory. It's the only one I can think of. I mean, does anybody else have any suggestions? I don't think there is another one. Are there any of the newer Dwarven heroes that have that ability? 
there are some that's it's not called blood and glory but it's like um i think ori has an aura where like if thorn's company around him kill a hero yeah. they can regain yeah. a might might will or fate yeah. yeah it's similar but it's not it's not the same thing yeah doesn't he have like a like a lore or something or other special role he chronicler into the, yeah chronicler that's it yeah uh, other than that yeah whenever somebody says blood and glory Aside from Gelglad, the only hero that really comes to mind for me is Shagrat. So. Easterlings. Yeah. And, and Easterlings, oh, yeah. yeah. No, it is, it is a very powerful, special rule. I don't know if, if you guys listened to uh, the, the Durin show, but like a while back, it might have been the last tournament we had, actually, a year and a half ago, uh, I had basically I had Gilgalad running against one of, one of the, I think it was Marcus's dwarves, and he, he kind of shut him down for the whole game. And then in the last turn... I finally started like getting priority and stuff, and then Gilgalad killed I think three heroes in like two turns. Just like kills one, next turn gets the heroic move to guarantee he can charge into another hero, gets the kill, gets a point of might back, and then just like so on. So it was it was gross. It was gross. So you can get it to snowball. It's just about getting to that point. And then yeah, I'm not sure if it's better to like wait it out with him at the start of the game or just have him do some stuff and then go after the enemy heroes near the end or if it's just to go straight into them both him and Gilglad, you kind of want to play the endurance game because just the ability to regenerate resources the same thing as like lsr right or aragorn like the longer the game goes and they stay alive you're generating value every single turn so yeah i think i would consider them late game specialists don't blow your load too early one thing that i will mention was i think it was a game i played against ian and he had a lendial sealdor and probably a couple of uh, captains all kitted out and they're pretty mean too at that point and he got all of his heroes into the first combat and then just called her at combats with everybody and we went early to late game pretty quick because the late game came around <laughs> about turn three because <laughs> ian ian like wiped out like half my army in the first turn and it was absolutely devastating so i mean sure late game because yeah turn two, late, late game. Er, yeah, early game can become late game pretty quick with heroes like that but no yeah you're right like the later the game goes the more valuable a point of might becomes that when everybody else runs out of might that just becomes like the the killer instinct so i'm like a little torn with how our squad system works right now just because <laughs> this profile is kind of weird I want to say he's a ten because of every like because he's like he's a good combat hero. He can fight heroes. He can fight troops. He buffs like every his army with the fight value and then like stand fast and stuff. But then I don't know if he's an auto take because then as soon as you take him, you, you're like you're taking him. You're super restricted in your army building. So it's like yeah, he's a ten. But then you need to understand like you you're going this route and you have to go that route. Does that kind of make sense to you guys? Yeah, it's kind of like um back when we were covering Earl Alta Young. I said that based on the profile, I think he's a 10. But due to his restrictions, I bumped him down to a 7 because there's just you have to play a certain way. There's not a lot of stuff you can do with him. And I think Gilgalad, too, in a lesser extent, I don't think he's as restricted because at least you can take other named heroes. And he does provide a lot of bonuses for your army. It's just It just feels like you're playing a legendary legion, though. So so for me, it'd probably be like, be like an 8. I don't know why. I mean, I personally can't bump him that low. Probably because, like, unless I change my Elendil rating uh, to match, 
I didn't really take the restriction in list building quite the same way when rating the profile because the profile by itself in both cases is phenomenal. So I really took that kind of at face value. I find that while it's very restrictive, especially if you combine the two lists in an alliance, do a last alliance kind of thing, they fill most of the gaps that you would really want. So while it's restrictive, they're still great. And because I essentially, I said I'd, I'd give Elendil uh, a nine to nine and a half, somewhere in that range. I'm going to give Gilgalad about the same, just for consistency. Yeah, I'm with Charles here. Like, I'd like to play him more, but I tend to not go that route if I'm taking any heroes from Rivendell. Like, you know, I would love to take him with, you know, fiefdoms with, like, you know, uh, broadswords in the front and then fight six in the back. But, you know, it's not to be... You're uh, talking about a dream that doesn't exist, Richard. It can't happen. Too a magic dream. You know, you know <laughs> what you would do to the game if we did this? There's a reason these things are in place. It's too powerful. We don't know what would happen. But, yeah, so I think profile-wise in a vacuum, probably a 9.5. But as it stands with the restrictions, I would have to give it an 8. Well, that's interesting. So you think he's better than a land <laughs> But... Worse. Well, that was my analysis is that I feel like stat wise, he is more undercosted than Elendil, but his restrictions are heavier than Elendil as well. So it's actually taken him down farther. All right. So next we are moving on to some army lists. So uh, because we're covering two profiles today, uh, we'll have somewhat of a variety. So first we'll have Alexander with a 500-point list with um, Elendil, and then I'll be bringing a list with Gilgalad at 600 points. And then we'll have Richard with um, a list with both at 800 points. And then finally, we'll have Ian with another list with Gilgalad at 800 points. So let's help have Alexander go first with his 500-point list. Okay, so reading this list out, I have a little bit of deja vu from the last time that I built a Numenor list that I did at 600 uh, this time I've got Elendil, fully cutted out, horse and shield. Two warriors of Numenor with shield, three with bow, five with shield and spear, and one with shield, spear, and banner. Then I've got a captain of Numenor, heavy armor, lance, and shield. Three warriors of Numenor with shield, two with bow, five with shield and spear. That's uh, 500 points even. Total 23 models, five might. Essentially, the only thing that I've changed from the 600-point list overall, really, uh, that I did in a previous episode was I decided not to take both Elendil and Isildur. I learned from the critique of that list. I decided that I would definitely need the Heroic March in there from the Captain. Captain's also a very reliable combat hero, especially when you give him all of the war gear upgrades. I didn't go for max bows because, well, Numenor bows are just kind of okay uh, did add a nice little handful in there just you know honesty bows for honesty's sake and there are obvious things in a pure list here that i can't make up for i don't have spell casters and i don't have cavalry but the two heroes both have horses so i'm going to hope that they can both do the movement and get those charge bonuses aside from that really standard uh, numenor lists not much explaining. A lot of things that shield, 
and or support and shield while Lendiel and the captain munch the opponent. That's it. That's the plan. Ta-da, I guess. I mean, I, I like it. It's it's hard to go wrong when you're using three out of the four profiles in the army list. So <laughs> no one could be like, you picked the wrong one. I'd be like, I don't think so. I only had four options and I picked three of them. Yeah, I, I think you definitely made the right decision with the Captain of Numenor instead of Isildur here. It shores up some of the weaknesses because of your low defense warriors of Numenor. You don't want to get shot out in a 500-point match. And, like, the difference between, like, a Captain of Numenor and Isildur and, like, hitting power is, to me, kind of marginal. So you're not losing out on a huge ton of hitting power there, and you're probably taking more guys and more mobility. So I like the pick. This is probably the way to build a 500-point Numenor list. Some people say it's tough for them to be competitive, but honestly, I do see this podiuming in a 500-point event. So I'll give this a legend. I agree with Richard that this is probably the best that you can do for a pure Numenor list. But I don't know if I believe that a pure Numenor list can be a hero of legend status. That's that's the that's where I'm kind of unsure. Not like a huge fan of the base warrior profile, but I understand that at lower points it, it might be okay. I'm just thinking at like an average model count, defense five, it's you might break a little bit more easily. So I actually wouldn't be too mad if. Alex just didn't have any bows and just put shields on all of his guys because um, at least there won't be like a soft spot in his ranks that his opponent could maybe try to pick off and break him early on. But otherwise, uh, I, I like your composition and uh, hero picks. So I'm going to set a Valor because uh, I just haven't personally seen a pure Numenor list take a tournament. Maybe I have and I just forgot, but I don't know if that list in pure form has that potential. So I'm going to sit at a Valor. Well, yeah, I think to, to be fair, I think if, if you were going to see a pure Numenor list take a tournament, it would be at low points like this, like five, 600, maybe even 400, you know, just just a Lendy and a bunch of dudes just going for it because of that. Because he's just so good and he's so hard to stop at that kind of level. As for the list itself, yeah, I, I think it's, it's pretty good. I mean... I basically ran this this exact list at like our first tournament this edition, except I had both my heroes on foot because I didn't have suitable mounted models, and it still did fine. I think I only lost one game, yeah, to Charles and his stupid dwarves because Elendil could. Yeah, I remember because freaking Elendil couldn't kill a dwarf king for like three turns. Ugh, but that is what it is. I still think yeah, because obviously you cover that that uh, mistake by having your heroes all mounted up, so. I, I mean, yeah, I think it, it's, it's good. The Warriors, I don't know, but I, I might disagree with you on that a little bit, Charles, with the Warriors of Numenor kind of thing. Just because, like, they're they're quite a good base profile. I think the issue is, is that you never have, like, enough of them because you have, like, these big heroes just taking up so much of your points cost. Because they are, like you said, they are lower defense. They just they go down and then they kind of, like, falter a bit. But, I don't know, 20... Three models at 500, considering he's got two big heroes and the banner in there. Yeah, I could see this like a soft legend. Yeah, I could definitely, I agree with you. I could see it taking a, a tournament. 
Guys, that's the last half of your lists. You have no clue how much I needed this bounce back. I needed to come back. I needed to come back for this. So, yeah, yeah, I'm happy. Great job. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay, next it will be a list that I brought, and it is a 600-point Rivendell list. So for my first warband, we have the leader, Gilglad, and he has a shield and horse. In his warband are six High Elf King's Guard with spear and shield, five High Elf King's Guard with shield, three High Elves with spear and shield, one High Elf King's Guard with shield and banner, one Knight of Rivendell with shield, one High Elf with elf bow, and Bilbo Baggins. Second warband is Kyrdan with six High Elves with elf bow. So that's 600 points, 26 models, five might. And so this one is taking the restriction uh, listed in Gilglad's profile, where if he includes Bilbo Baggins, then he's impossible with all other lists. So I just kept it pure. Bilbo is an independent hero, so he's slotted into Gilglad's warband, which is handy when it comes to, like, Maelstrom. And the idea of this list is use Bilbo as almost like a second threat of the list. So typically, I think at a 600 points, if you were to run this list with Gilglad, you would think, I'm going to take Gilglad and then a captain or like another mid-tier hero, like an Aristor or something. But instead of doing that, I'm taking Bilbo, who has the one ring. And because I have so many uh, Kingsguard, I have 12 Kingsguard. Bilbo will be protected and surrounded by Fight Six Warriors, and that itself will form its own threat because when a model is wearing the One Ring and has like a Fight Six support, no model can really beat that unless they um, somehow can control Bilbo with the role that he has to make uh, for wearing the ring. The issue is Bilbo is a little bit fragile, but if I can kind of keep him behind my lines until I'm ready to throw him in, it kind of comes down to um, positioning, but Bilbo and the Kingsguard will form a threat, and then I'll have Gilgalad forming the other threat. And then with Kyrdan as a support, I don't have the Heroic March, but I am maxed out on bows, so I feel like that's okay at 600 points. Uh, what do you guys think? I, I think the addition of Bilbo Baggins is interesting, but I'm not sure if that's the route I would have gone because I when you say that there it creates a secondary threat I'm just wondering if that sounds better in theory rather than practice because even if you can guarantee a dual win against any hero you're striking back at strength 2 and strength 3 cuz elves elves aren't hitting very hard either so I see it more as like a stall tactic right well, they all have the, the Elven Blade, the hand and a half, so you could well, get... Not, not if you're supporting Bilbo. Yeah. So unless you get, yeah, I yeah. guess, yeah, two models into the, the front. It is definitely a stall and defensive tactic because I'm taking Kyrdan, right? So I'm going to rely on Aura of Dismay and play more, like, defensive and just use Gilgalad's offensive. But yeah, it's not great for offense. Yeah, but I guess it's just like, I don't know if this works... Or kind of the synergy that you need, because does Gilgalad need the tool to stall other big heroes, or does he just go straight up kill them? Like, at 600 points, I, I just, I don't really know what kind of goes up against Gilgalad that Gilgalad is afraid of that he needs, I guess, a stall mechanic to help him. The route I would go for would be more 
maybe take out Bilbo Baggins, and then take out a bunch of the King's Guard. Like, I don't even know if you need 12. Maybe take two or three, and then, you know, get a captain or uh, maybe Aerostore instead if you want more hitting power. But that's kind of the route that I'm leaning towards. Well, I guess that kind of goes into the philosophy of, of what do you do with the King's Guard. I think, Richard, you're generally more in favor of just taking a few fight six guys, whereas, like, uh, Charles, I don't know how you are all the time, but at least here you took a lot of them. And then, like, usually when I take Gilgalad, I just, like, take, like, a ton of guys with the fight six just to have the versatility everywhere. But uh, I don't know. What, what's, do you guys have any more thoughts on that? Or Yeah, I've definitely heard people even going all 18 Kings Guard because I guess, like, you know, like, they're everywhere, and it's hard to stop. I guess, in a way, redundancy can be a pro, too, but I guess it's not really my play style, because I see it as more of a con, right? Like, if you're not using the fight six, it's just a waste of points. But I, I guess to give my rating, I still really like the gilglad Kirdan combo. I think that's really strong, and the model count isn't even that bad at 600 points. You know, 26 models. And having the one ring is really nice, too. I, I just don't know if it's kind of working the, maybe the strategy you want in this kind of list. But Do you I, think it's better if Bilbo swapped out for, like, two knights? Because if I go Kyrdan, then I won't have the warband space, really. I wouldn't have the points to take a third hero. So well, would you just max out his well, warband with knights? Isn't Bilbo, like, 60 points? 40. It's the old he's, Bilbo. He's 40, though. So you could swap Bilbo for a knight and then swap a couple more of your guys for a knight, but your Gilgalad's full right now. This is Warband is. Which... I feel like if you want to play Kyrdan, this is the only way is to to take Bilbo or if you want to take more knights. Yeah. Like three or four knights. The, the 600 is kind of awkward for it once you go with Gilgalad, though. If you want to do Kyrdan. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean that, that that wouldn't be a bad list either though, like because then you you have you have more mobility, right? Yeah, because cause you already don't have the march, so I think having a couple more knights would be nice too. And I guess it would spread out a bit of the killing power because Kirdan and Bilbo aren't really going to be killing anything. I still really like it. I think I would probably give this a valor though. For my rating, I agree with just about everything Richard said, So, I, but I'm, I still also really like the list, so I'm going to give it a valor too. I don't know. Because <laughs> at 600, it's kind of getting to the point where just having the one big threat isn't great. I know you, you still have Bilbo in the Kingsguard that can shut down enemy heroes, but 26 models and like the one big hero, uh, it's making me nervous. Especially because, uh, wait, how many bows do you have? You've got eight in, bows? In, yeah. in Charles' defense, I wouldn't be too afraid of breaking with the D6 and then Aura of Dismay. It's, it's a force multiplier. So. Yeah, that is true. That is true. He does give you a lot of buffs. Hmm. I don't know, but see, even then, though, your, your mobility is... I mean, do you need a lot of mobility if you pick Blinding Light and you outshoot your enemy? I mean, I would probably want to shoot everyone, but... I'm just thinking it is, I agree, obviously, like, it's not as important because you have the buff spells. It's not even about just getting people to come at you. If we're talking about scenarios that you have to run across the map, I think that's when you might struggle. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. It's like, because 
even in like a domination thing, if you because this is the, I play these kind of armies all the time. Like you shoot them a lot, but then you need to be able to get to the objectives in the late game before the game ends. And I think you might struggle with that. It would obviously it would, it would hang a lot around a Gilgalad, and then I think him in the late game doing like heroic combats and stuff, like picking off heroes and then going clearing off objectives, right? Yeah, I think it's just because, like, Kyrdan is already, like, a death ball kind of, like, strategy, and then you're you're adding in Bilbo, so you're really mm-hmm. committed to the death ball. Well, the other thing is, yeah, because you, you have Bilbo, you're kind of, you're basically going to be always moving with this list, but you're going to be moving, like, at your shooting guy's pace, like, three, four inches a turn, so that kind of slows you down more. I, I'm, I might have to go fortitude, but, like, a high fortitude. It's it's definitely a high skill level. It depends on like who's playing it, I guess. Like I think in, in your hands, Charles, it could be like a valley, like you could do really well with it, but like if somebody just tried to pick this up and play with it, it, it would be like kinda middle of the road. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. I was being a little bit cheap not going for the, the Mithril coat, because uh, he's defense two right now. Bilbo's defense two. And I was just like, ah, defense five Bilbo at the cost of like almost another half a Bilbo. Eh. Defense too, and you want to run him in the front line <laughs> as a stall. Uh, he's got free fate. <laughs> but yeah, he doesn't. I looked. He doesn't have defense, so he, all he has is resolve. Which, Damn, you're yeah. sending a 111 year old hot in the front lines. And that's just pure intimidation. Like if the enemy sees that coming at them, they're gonna wonder what the hell is behind him. <laughs> Okay, uh, now let's move on to Richard's 800-point list. Okay, so I have uh, Gilgalad as my leader with shield and horse, leading one king's guard with shield, spear, banner, and then three king's guard with shield and spear, and then eight high elf warriors with shield, five elf warriors with bow, and one Rivendell knight. And in the second warband, we have Elendil with horse and shield, leading 11 warriors of Numenor with shield and spear. And in the third warband, we have the captain of Numenor with everything on the profile. This comes to a total of 32 models at 800 points. So I guess it's it's pretty simple. I went with a few Kingsguard just so I can maximize the amount of models. I feel like low 30s is probably the minimum that I would be comfortable with in a 100-point list. I do have the March, and I do have two insanely strong hitters that we talked about today. So I think they have really good synergy because, um, you know, Gilgalad can hunt enemy heroes. And then Elendil, he is flexible to either go fight heroes, mid-range heroes, or warriors, but... I think in this list, I would focus on trying to kill as many warriors as possible. And then the Captain of Numenor with the Lance can do a lot of damage to warriors as well, um, him being fight five. So I think you can kind of play a bit of um, a tempo kind of strategy to this and, and really burn out the other enemy list. But if it comes down to like a late game grindy kind of situation, I think it also has legs because of the blood and glory on Gilglad and then the free hero combat on Elendil. And and of course, like the battle line is fight five and fight six. And then I have Numenora, which is strength four spears in the back. So 
you know, I, I could do some damage there. So, thoughts on this, guys? I really quite like it. I see things with the Kingsguard, I think, a lot the way you do. I, I like having, you know, a small handful of them. If you, if you wanted to put them in the back, you could. I can understand why you'd want to hide uh, your uh, Numenorean warriors back there instead because of the lower defense, insulate them a little bit, but being able to have just a small handful in there, you know, I'm, I look at it and I'm pretty happy to see the total count number. I think it's pretty solid considering, you know, low 30s, you've got the three pretty heavy hitting heroes. If you're able to, to play defense with the rest of them for a while. Aside from that, you've also got uh, one Rivendell Knight and while normally in, in an 800-point list, I'd probably want more along the lines of three. With everything else you have in the list, you really don't need it. I like the picks you've made. I think it's a, I think it's a legend. It just kind of depends on, on, on matchup, right? You can still end up in a fighty scenario against an army that doesn't have a lot of bows, and then you're, you're fine, right? Obviously, if you do end up against an army with a lot of bows, you're really going to struggle just because your numbers are so low i yeah i like the hero picks and everything i don't know composition is good for what you're going for like it makes sense to put the elves up front because you want that the d6 right i don't know the numbers just make me nervous this is coming from a guy who ran like a 28 model army at 800 points i know i know i know obviously but that 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 was like like you know dab on the haters let's try and make this work (laughs) and this one is like different i feel like it has better legs to stand on than that one does for sure but still the the 32 models is like iffy but i mean i guess how many of them are defense six like eight nine twelve thirteen d6 so it's not terrible i'm just nervous right now because if, if you come up against like any kind of a list with like a tribe or like any kind of siege weapon that's going to be trouble for you um or anything that yeah. can just like I, I think we forgot to cover that. I think Elendil Gilglad's main weakness is a siege weapon with the one fate. It can really, yeah. really mess up their day. Well, yeah, because no matter what, if it gets a direct hit, it's going to dehorse them, which is a, like shuts them down a lot. And then, yeah, if you roll low on that fate roll, you're going to have to burn might, which is going to shut them down even more because then they, they just don't have might to do what they want to do. I'm feeling like a valor for this one, I think. Because it still has good legs to stand on, and it's just... I'm nervous about shooting armies, especially because they're very prominent right now. Okay, so based on you knowing that I'm not a big fan of Numenor warriors, what are your thoughts about swapping the captain of Numenor with a high elf captain, and then instead of taking warriors in Numenor, you take elf warriors in the elf captain's warband, and then put in Elendil as the single drop instead of the captain? When you drop the total count numbers quite a bit lower, though, in order to do that, because the high elf captain's a bit more expensive, and then the warriors are more expensive, so you'd be dropping that number yeah. even further. You, you might go down to, like, 30, I guess. You'd probably be, like, yeah, around but 30. Well, no, no, well, the the captain is already 20 points more, so that's already going, or the yeah. high elf captain's already going down two guys. And then if you switch all 10 warriors and Numenor, you're going to lose another guy, so that's... Well, no, you, you can swap all the, the Warriors and New Orleans Spear Shield just for Elves with Shield. That's a straight swap. So you lose a lot of Spears if you go that route, but you could do it. Right. 
then I guess that would just be a lot of shielding and the waiting for your heroes to do the killing. I, mm. Yeah. But you you do kind of lose the strength four as well. Right. I like your composition as it is. I'm just thinking, because without buffing numbers, I'm just thinking how else you can make your list more durable. And I'm just thinking, oh, maybe maybe there's a way to get rid of those Warriors and Numenor. But you can't do that easily. But yeah, this is like a late game kind of list. Like once once your opponent is all out of might, they're pretty much screwed. Because this is like you're banking on both of them, if possible, surviving till like mid game, then your chances of winning goes up uh, by the turn. So as long as you don't get like, like you said, siege weapons or just some lucky like bow shots or, or maybe one of them gets caught with like a spell, this will be a really, really strong list. If nothing like that happens to you early on by mid game, if they get dismounted, they're, they're still like really, really efficient. But yeah, just, just like those early, early game turns that I'd be worried about. But otherwise, yeah, I'd, I'd probably say this is a hero of legend. I will say, just on on that note about the magic kind of thing, that's the another just issue with Gilgalad that I find is like if you run him in a list like this with a Lendiel or in like a pure list with Glorfindel and you come up against a magic user, there's like no chance that they're gonna try and cast on that one hero and you just know they're just gonna spend all their will just shutting down Gilgalad, which is super annoying. I don't know. I find that like a bit of a maybe a weakness to him. I don't know. Okay, Ian, you're for the final list. 800 points. Okay, so like Charles said, yeah, I'm at 800 points. I went for a pure list and maybe a slightly controversial pick. We'll see. <laughs> anyway, so the list is Gilgalad, uh, full out, so uh, with the horse and the shield. He has seven Kingsguard with spear and shield. One High Elf Warrior with Spear, Shield, and Banner. Four High Elf Warriors with Bow. My second Warband is Aristor. He has four High Elf Warriors with Shield and four High Elf Warriors with Bow. Third Warband is Kirdan. He has three High Elf Warriors with Shield and three High Elf Warriors with Bow. And my last Warband is Gildor, and he has five Exiles with Spear and Throwing Daggers and then just one Exile with no extra kit. So that comes to 800 points, 36 models, which is 19 dead to break, 11 bows, and 5 throwing daggers with 7 might points. So basically what the composition is, I could kind of set it up so I, as I have like my little death ball with like the first three warbands. So Aristor, Kirdan, get the high elf warriors with shield up front, and then put Gilgad with the King's Guard behind and just play that. And then I have Gildor off to the side just running around causing havoc and chaos with his uh, exiles. Or I can kind of split it up because uh, all the exiles have spear. They could either go with Aristor or Kirdan and form their own little like mini warband to skirmish and fight with. Yeah, there's a general idea that I read about online that I do want to try, and it's basically like you you set up your normal shield wall right, and you have somebody with like throwing weapons in the second rank. So after the engage happens, provided you lose priority. You run your spearmen around to the back of the enemy formation and just throw daggers into their spear supports. And then the next turn, hopefully you'll get the charge off and charge into there. Basically, you just like, instead of fighting a standard shield wall battle, you turn it into a whole bunch of just chaos and one-on-one fights and stuff like that, which I'm interested in trying. I don't know how well it'll work. In theory, it sounds nice. 
And I think something like that, like chaos happening like that, might actually be a good thing for Gilgalad to be able to go into the enemy and find enemy heroes and kill them, because they'll probably be more isolated in that position. Not sure. That's all theory. As for the heroes, yeah, I mean, Aristar, I just picked him because, you know, nice little secondary striking hero. He's versatile. He also has a throwing dagger thing, so he can do that cheekiness that I was just talking about. Kirdan, we know and we love him. And then my last pick is Gildor. I don't see him out, like, ever, but I actually quite like him and his profile, considering he's only 70 points. One might point isn't great, but he has the four will for Cheeky Immobilizes if something goes wrong. And he has, like I said, that one white point, but he has, like, a crazy amount of heroic actions. Like, he has, yeah, so he has Channeling, Resolve, March, and Defense. Those are all so useful. And he has Terror, which is just handy. So he's, he's kind of like, I don't know. I, I like him. I like him. And I think then, all your heroes have Terror. Uh, yeah, sure. they do, because Kirdan, yeah, yeah, they do. Oh, I didn't even think about that. That's handy. I'm I'm a little, little bit wary whenever I hear about... A battle plan that's re- like revolved around throwing weapons, unless it's corsairs, because they don't really pay for their throwing weapons. But well, it, it's not like the main battle plan. It's just like a thing you can do, right? Yeah, yeah. Other than um, that, you just have for skirmishing and capturing objectives. Yeah, Gildor is very controversial, though. I'll give you that. Very controversial pick. I don't know if uh, you know. You're right. He can do a lot with that one might, but it's one might. And then you also have Kirden, who has one might. So good thing that you have Blood and Glory in there that you can balance it out if it goes late game. But other than your leader, your other three are kind of fragile. I, I would kind of have to see like how you position each one of these warbands. I, I think the reason you don't see Gildor in the Exiles a lot is because it doesn't really synergize with Rivendell. I know that like having the throwing daggers and the move eight is nice and the spells that you can bring in, but it just seems like it's a lot of points for a couple gimmicks. That's just my opinion. Maybe you've used Gildor to success before, but it just feels like it would be better if you had used those points to get like actually a couple knights in there because you don't have knights, right? And then maybe like max out Aristor's warband. So that that was basically the the conundrum. It's like. The Rivendell Captain, there's only like the two sources of March in the list. There's Gildor or the Rivendell Captain. And then for speed, it's the same thing. You have the Rivendell Knights or you have the Exiles. The thinking with this is that I have, well, I guess if you count Gildor, I have seven guys who have moved eight and then Gilgalad who's mounted. Whereas in another list with Knights and the Captain mounted, I'd probably only end up with like four or five guys. And then I start really cutting into numbers. Because if you load out the Exiles with Spear and Throwing Daggers, it's not quite two to one per Knights. It's like slightly less. But, you know, that's kind of what I think is you get more mobility in there, even though they're slightly less mobile, but they have the smaller bases. So that kind of helps counteract. And they can run through the forests, too, if there are forests on the board. Again, this is still just kind of theory. I am going to get a Gildor hopefully soonish and try this out. But I don't know. Also, yeah, on the cost thing, I kind of feel like I agree with you. The Exiles are kind of overcosted at this point, but then Gildor kind of feels like he's really cheap for what he brings to the table. So I feel like it kind of balances out. I don't know if Gildor is that great of a value. <laughs> I don't know if I agree with you there, but it is only a small portion of your list. So it's not like it's this is a Gildor list and, you know, he's like the, your main strategy. So I don't think it affects your list too much. It just 
Personally, I don't think it's the most efficient way to build it, but the rest of the list is really solid, and I'll give this um, I'll give this a hero of valor. Yeah, I like the Gildor inclusion. I mean, I've always thought he was an interesting hero, and it's always nice when you take a hero that's a little bit underutilized, and then you you know surprise the person across. You know, it's the best feeling when they're at a tournament and they're like, you know, what does that guy do again? And it's like. Okay, you know, they're not prepared for whatever you're going to bring. And this is nice because you're spending a decent amount on heroes, but you're still hitting the 36 models. So the exiles there kind of, in a way, are cheaper options to the knights. What I would consider instead, though, I'm surprised you didn't put bows on them because they have their elven cloaks and they're only D3. So the times that you don't want to jump in with them, they're kind of good objective grabbers and stuff. Well, the thinking was with giving them the spears and throwing daggers was that they would be like the skirmishy force and they'd, they'd kind of go ahead and like maybe go after objectives and harass. And also that strategy that I mentioned earlier. But I believe... Or wait, would they still get the army bonus? They're mm. technically Rivendell, right? Uh, it's models with the Rivendell keyword. Yeah, so they, they retain the Lothlorien keyword, though. That's the issue. <laughs> I don't Which think you should care also, about the Rivendell army bonus. Yeah, it's true. It's it's not like a big deal. But also, funnily enough, I guess if you take Gildor, ally him into a Lothlorien list, then all of his troops still get the Lothlorien army bonus. I don't know if they're part of that list or if they're part of this list. It's confusing. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I almost rather see them with like no spears and with bows. And then maybe if you only go like three or four of them. And then you can have a few more defense six guys because, I mean, essentially they're the same cost. And then that, that kind of shores up and gives you a stronger battle line, but you still have, you know, three or four models just running around the forest, you know. And then just like with the bows, like the times where you don't want to run in, like you can be shooting from an objective. So, yeah, I think just a minor tweak there, but I kind of like what you're going for. Uh, I would give this a Valor. I was just also weary the second I see Gildor and Exiles, because it seems like something that doesn't really work out in gameplay the way you want it to on paper. He does have a solid assortment of heroic actions, but like Charles said, he has one might, so you get to pick one and use it, and once you've used it, it's gone. The March is useful, obviously, in this list. The rest of the list I like. I, of course, like the Kirdan pick. I think with Gilgalad, that's a really strong combination. I'm still going to give it a power. I think one more thing on the Gildor. I think the main plus that he brings to this list, at least I see, is the Immobilize. On a 3+, plus and he has 4 will. I feel like paired up with Gilgalad, the Immobilize is extremely strong. Like, nothing's going to be able to go up against Gilgalad. And... Because I've, like, thought about trying to ally in Immobilize before with, like, Gladriel, but she's, you know, twice as many points as Gildor. So I think it's an interesting option. Okay, so all of these army lists today you can find on our Facebook page to search Into the West podcast. If you follow our page, you should be able to find all four of these lists as well as other posts such as painting updates and stuff like that. Let's move on to our open topic of the day, which is things that we would like to change about the game. Okay, so in today's open topic, 
it will be an open discussion on things that we would like to see change about the game. Perhaps like a wish list for the next edition. So it was pretty open, kind of anything about the game can be brought up. And we'll kind of just give our feedback and discuss whether we agree with these changes and um, how they would help the game. So we each pick two two things. And uh, yeah, you can go as like detailed as you want, or if it's just like a general suggestion, general criticism of the current system. Richard, let's start with what you brought today. Um, okay, so I guess I've like touched upon this a few times, but my first, I guess, thing that I would like to change is, I guess, the continuing limitations on the alliance matrix. And to a lesser extent, I guess, like them creating a legendary legion for everything, because I feel like this kind of restricts you know, creative list building, like kind of like what we try to do on this podcast, try, but sometimes fail, but, but it's fun. Right. So yeah. And, and I feel like it's a way for um, them to combine narrative with competitive play, but I'm just not sure why they need to combine the two. Like from time to time, I enjoy the narrative play as well. Like, you know, we have like a local, like Helm's Deep, annual Helm's Deep event and it's really enjoyable but I feel like when it comes to tournament play I just like the open aspect of it almost like you know certain video games that I've played in the past like Warcraft or like Starcraft like they have their own like stories obviously but when it comes to the competitive side where you're trying to pit the top players against each other or everyone's trying to win it should be like you know, all of that should be out the window and everyone should just be able to take anything. That's my viewpoint anyway. I know it's extreme and probably quite controversial. So <laughs> You're not saying that you're against the idea of a legendary legion, right? It's still like, it should still be in the game. Just it shouldn't be slowly replacing the Alliance Matrix. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I like how there's different ones. It's almost like a new style to play, but... Yeah, if it goes down the road where, like, they add in Legendary Legions, but then they limit the Alliance Matrix more, or they add Erratas, like the Gilgalad one, to limit what he can be taken with more and more, you know, then I don't like the route that that's going down. So I think I would agree with you to, like, an extent, because I still like the Allies Matrix and stuff. But if there are more restrictions with, like, the, the, the Hero of Fortitude, Hero of Valor thing... If they go even further down that road, I'd be quite upset. Right now, I would like to see it revert down to the Hero of Fortitude to be able to do the Yellow Alliances. I, I don't think that was that much of an issue. I think there's a couple models that were an issue that they also fixed when they released that FAQ, and then they just added this as a blanket on top. And there's been complaints about that online since that one started. So I, I don't see a reason not to revert that back down to, to, to that. And then I just I think it's fine the way the system is. Yeah, I, I mean, having certain restrictions is fine because that almost adds to the creative list building aspect to me. So, yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. But, yeah, that that FAQ with the Hero of Valor for Yellow Alliance is really, really hurt. I think in that situation, then bringing Kirdan down to Minor Hero, I feel, fixed the problem. But instead, they, they also double down and move the requirement up to Valor. And then try to fix it by also making Haldir and King profiles Hero Valor, but that only fixed those army lists. 
it kind of changed a lot of evil lists in particular, because a lot of evil lists don't have very many heroes of valor. So all of a sudden, it's very hard to ally if you don't take like Mouth of Sauron or 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 like a, a name Ring Wraith. If you're trying to at yellow ally like a Mordor list, and Isengard became so much harder to ally, and Moria too. Uh, if you don't take Durbers, you're pretty much not going to ally. I, I think that's a good point, and also like I feel like it swung evil to be a little less competitive because the ally matrix in general, most of the evil lists are yellow or red and yellow and red became much harder to ally and became worse right so inherently evil as a whole just became less competitive whereas good there's so many green alliances that they didn't suffer as big of a penalty yeah yeah i agree with that i think that leads to one of the points i was going to bring up today and i don't know how much you guys feel about that but it's how the meta, it feels like it always revolves around what the latest FAQ says. So like the example of what we were just talking about, the Hero Valor change. After that FAQ came out, it seemed like everyone started building lists differently. Obviously, if you still played like pure lists, then it doesn't really affect you. But anyone who wanted to ally... Even people who wanted to like just play like fun games, not even for tournaments, they're like, oh man, I can't build this army anymore. And then we're, we're just sitting around waiting like, oh, six months later, we're going to get another FAQ. Is it going to be reverted? Are we going to be expected to play a whole different way again? I don't know if, if I like that. I kind of preferred if the FAQ just made small changes to the game, kind of like stuff that was either like needs clarifying or something's just like, really really broken but in my experience there hasn't really been been anything in this game that's like super broken when it came out so i, I just don't like how they use that the faq twice a year faq as like a, a chance to change up the way to play the game i think i kind of disagree with you here i actually don't mind the meta changes i guess touching back to more like you know competitive video games i kind of see this as like a patch when metas get stale and and I feel like biannual, like twice a year, is not too frequent compared to, you know, some games where it's it could be like every month. So I don't really mind that. And I, I think it kind of, you know, like switches things up. I, I agree that they probably shouldn't make any like massive, massive like game breaking changes because then if something is completely broken, you have to wait six months for the next edit. So that, that's kind of yeah. lame. But I don't mind the changes here and there to change yeah, like yeah. the tournament meta. Like, I'm okay with them, like, changing the Iron Hills ballista points. Just, like, things that to make it a little more balanced. But when you're talking, like, the Black Dart change, too, it's it, it seems like this edition they wanted heroes to be, bigger heroes to be more viable. So they nerfed magic in this new edition. And then they're kind of, like, bring the, the ring rates back up with this latest FAQ to give the black darts a little more power. So then I know we don't have a big sample size now because there, there, are, there aren't very many tournaments, but in, in other six months, are they going to revert that? And then, you know, you know what I mean? It's like people who don't own a lot of armies, are they just going to have to sit around and wait for their army to get their buff before they can bring it to a tournament because they don't know what the current meta might be? I don't, I'm, I'm kind of caught in the middle between you two because, like, 
I don't know. If you look at this recent FAQ, they just kind of addressed a random issue, which spawned this huge conversation that ended up resulting in that that like that black dark conclusion being formed. But like other than that, there weren't a lot of big sweeping changes, right? Because there weren't a lot of tournaments going on. There weren't like any tournaments going on, right? So that leads me to believe that it's kind of like Richard was saying, it's kind of like a balanced patch. Like if over the course of a few months, they see, oh, these things should probably be changed to bring them a little bit more in line. So then we'll do this and we'll do that. I will agree with you though, that a lot of them seem kind of, you know, big heavy handed things. Like we just mentioned where, or like you just mentioned where they, they changed the way the alliances work and then they changed the, the ranking of Kings and all this stuff. And like in base profiles where I think that should be kept to a minimum. Like if you're changing a profile, you should keep it down low. Cause then it becomes a burden for, for people getting into the game. Right. You're trying to introduce them. You go, okay, here's this book and here's these books. And oh, by the way, there's like seven FAQs. You have to read through all of them because this was changed and that was changed and this was changed. So if you're going to make like bigger changes like that, you shouldn't change a ton of profiles. You should keep a few profiles that really, really need changing and then alter the way other things work, I would say. I think perhaps the intention of the changes was for them to be smaller than what the end action was. The way we saw Kirdan, I can't remember what the other profile was that was changed at the same time, but Kirdan was made a minor hero. Essentially, that change alone probably would have corrected the entire issue that surrounded it, but then to change the hero tier necessary to create an alliance was to make a broad sweeping change that really wasn't necessary. I mean, didn't the team say, though, that the issue with the black dart was not a change rather than a clarification to the way the rule had always been intended? However, of course, it seems I, like I it seems like no one played it that way. Yeah, no one played it that way, though. No one played it that way. Yeah, so everyone played it wrong. You've been playing this wrong for 20 yeah. years, and we're just yeah. mentioning it now. That, that, that seems a little fishy. Yeah. I agree with the sweeping change thing. I think that some of the changes can be a little more well thought out. Like, they nerfed Nature's Wrath because of Radagast, right? But then, in my opinion, Elrond and Arwen's Nature's Wrath were fine. But then now you see them less. Wrath of Brunin, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's one um, of those things, like I said, like, a couple of profiles in the game need adjusting, and you can probably just go about the slight minor corrections within those specific profiles. I would oh. like to mention, though, that before all of this, if we go back about 15 years, we could have just had a shaman and 45 goblins. Oh, those were the simple days. <laughs> are you talking about goblins that are volleying as well? Don't don't get me started on bringing back volley, okay? <laughs> I used to be able to do that. That was a lot of fun. I missed that. Richard, do you want to go over your second point? So I guess my next one is, like... As a competitive player, I guess I I understand this is a luck-based game and there's dice involved and all that. But at the same time, I wish some some aspects of the game were less swingy, where it almost comes down to like, of course, if you play better than your opponent, usually you can win. But if you are playing an opponent who is equally as good or you guys are playing equally well, it may just come down to a coin toss, which sometimes I don't like. You know, whether it's like a really important heroic move or a heroic combat off, I just feel like there can be small changes to this, more 
to add more like tactical options. Like I'd like a bit of luck to things like stuff like the heroic strike. So I like it because it comes down to a roll off, but at the same time, it takes into account the hero's base stats, which you're paying for. So if you're a Gorbag and you're going up against Gilgalad, you know, you can strike against Gilgalad, but you can't like expect to hit the fight 10. So you have to take that into account. Whereas like a heroic move, it's like a Gilgalad is trying to heroic move off against, you know, a goblin captain, but then it's 50-50. So I almost wish there was a mechanic where it's like, maybe it's based off like their heroic tier level. So if it's Gilgalad calling against like a captain, so it's like legend versus fortitude, then maybe he gets the heroic move off on a three plus. So there's still luck involved, but there's a little bit more tactical play. Then you have to consider where you're placing your heroes for the heroic move and not just, oh, let me just throw a hero to the left wing. You have to think, do I put a captain in the same vicinity as an enemy hero of legend where they now have more chance to get initiative the next turn? So something like that. I like that that design change because it it kind of makes the big heroes might more valuable. So the one thing that always annoyed me about this game is like how like a 50 point three might captain and like a 200 point Elendil, they both have three might. So like, oh, they can both call three heroic moves, which they'll win on a coin toss on a roll off. But now you're saying that you're integrating the heroic tier in more so that a big hero, even though he has the same number of might as like a Gorolf, his might are more valuable because he's a higher tier. It makes more sense in when it comes to, to like the characteristic of the hero. He's probably more tactically experienced and he probably makes better decisions. He's probably quicker thinker, stuff like that. I like the three plus idea. Another idea I thought of was maybe it, the, the hero with the higher tier has the option to spend a second point of might to win and skip that roll off or something like that, where because they're a higher tier, they get the option of the security of winning that roll-off, something like that. I think I like that idea more, Charles, just because it sounds like it'd be a lot easier to balance in the game, just because otherwise it sounds like you just always favor bigger heroes and you wouldn't really take the small heroes, you know what I mean? Well, if we went with Richard's idea, then there would be points adjustments too. It's just, it's just like a change of mechanics. And it would also kind of make the hero tiers mean more, because right now it's just more warband slots, and if you ever use hero challenge, those are the only two things, really. Yeah. And, and I guess alliances. Yeah, it's less about the mechanic. I just wish there was something in place. And I think it also adds another tactical thought in who to call the heroic move with. Right now, yes, it's important, but you're mostly just thinking about the positioning, but I feel like this kind of adds another layer of thought where it's not just if both of your heroes are in position, you just call it on your crappier hero. Like now it's like, okay, maybe I do, you know, burn it off an Elendil. As valuable as it is, there's more chance because I really need this heroic move. So I just thought that would be kind of cool. And, and it just, as a competitive player, I just feel like, the more options you have and more decisions you have to make these choices, then the more likely, you know, you won't lose just based on dice. Because as much as I don't like complaining about 
dice-based losses, there are games where it's just so not in your favor. Yeah, and speaking of scenarios that are very, like, coin toss-based, I believe it's one of the points Ian wanted to bring up. Off the top of my head, Seize the Prize and Contest of Champions are the two that kind of a huge advantage for winning the first priority. Well, yeah, it's yeah, it's not even like the first priority, and then you go to this the move off, which is 50-50, and if you lose it, you know, it, it kind of sets the pace for the game. You, if you lose that 50-50 roll-off on the first turn, now you're fighting uphill an uphill battle, pretty much in, in almost every case. And, and I changes to heroic actions, I think, would help that, but I also just think it just be changes to some of the scenarios would make a big difference with the way that works. I don't, I don't know exactly how you could change those two. I mean, well, okay, so if Contest of Champions, you could just add in a special rule where once your main hero dies, the next highest tier takes up the role and can keep on doing that. Because right now, it's like, oh, you lose your leader, and the game is basically over. You cannot win. I, I don't know. There, there's some ways like that. And then... I think for Seize the Prize, you shouldn't be able to pick it up the first turn or try to dig it up. <laughs> yeah, that's really that, cheesy. That might be the easiest way, because then yeah, I, that's probably the easiest fix. Is just you can't pick it up on the first turn, because then you can still march up and get a bubble around it. But then at least next turn it kind of matters, like you, you're not like a turn ahead for sure. Yeah, that's not a bad change. It's simple. As for other scenario changes, I think we should probably just change the way how the deployment zones are and maybe have a lot fewer scenarios where you're kind of deploying at opposite edges of the table. And the reason I say that is because, A, it kind of just, if you're thinking of playing in like a tournament, it kind of speeds up the game because you are on a time limit, right? So it means hopefully you'll be able to get more games that play to conclusion, right? like a natural conclusion rather than playing to time, which I, I think is generally preferable. And then the other thing that that does is that it should nerf the effectiveness of shooting armies if you're starting closer together. Because right now, shooting armies are super popular. And like I've always said, like shooting is, is, is always effective in this game. But I'd say part of the reason that it's, it's so popular right now and doing so well is because there are more armies that can break that 33% bow limit. And a lot of scenarios, you end up far away, so you can really exploit that and use that to your advantage to just devastate the enemy uh, army. To add on to that, I'll speak on behalf of everyone in the world except for Ian, but shooting is generally not fun. I feel like most people enjoy the move phase and the combat phase a lot more. Shooting plays a critical role in the game. It's not meant to be, at least it's it's not powerful enough that typically you can table an, an opponent purely on shooting but that it plays more of a tactical role in a game. In certain scenarios, if there would be an option to revert to what the older deployment zones were, where in a lot of scenarios, players would deploy 12 inches from their own board edge. So essentially, you would start about half a board's length across from each other. Is that something that you think would be effective if it was like a choice as an alternative deployment so for instance if you're playing a casual game both you and your opponent would agree instead of deploying at our board edges we would deploy at the 12 inch mark or the 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 to prior to the game starting would say we're using the alternative deployment situation okay so i'm gonna make a blanket statement here and obviously this is 
might change a little bit depending on on, on each specific scenario. Like some of those Ian, have more just said effective. blanket statements aren't working. What's going on? Okay, go on. <laughs> but in general, what I meant by that is that in the Hobbit edition, a lot of scenarios you would roll for each warband, and on a one, two, three, you would have to deploy within the first from the center line to 12 inches back on your deployment side, right? And then on a four, five, six, you could deploy anywhere on your deployment half. So with that, it just meant that armies were starting a lot closer to each other. So shooting wasn't as much of an issue. Now, granted, additionally, we have a lot more armies that just have shooting buffs and ways to break the bow limit in this edition. So I think that combined with the change to scenarios is why we're seeing, like, even at the start of this edition, like, like people played pure Harad and were going, well, this is disgusting. I'm getting 20 bows, re-rolling everything, and just, like, obliterating half the enemy army. And when they get to me, it's it's not really a game at that point, right? So you're saying essentially, yeah, I can see, I mean, the, we've got these armies where shooting becomes such a central part or such um, a prominent part of that specific legion's overall strategy that we're seeing the game move away from what shooting originally was, which was a kind of a strategic side strategy or like sub strategy within the game that held, you know, some importance but was not the central concept of how someone would play yeah having good shooting should get you an advantage if you can like make use of it it shouldn't just like flat out win you a game (laughs) under like i mean obviously it's gonna be corner cases but like with these armies where it's like oh yeah i'd line up you know 40 uh rangers of gondor and oh you can only move six inches a turn all right you've basically lost this game I mean, there are counters to shooting, but then do you really want to, like, have to bring blinding light to every tournament? I think it comes down to scenario design and maybe just the ratio of scenarios that favor uh, shooting armies compared to scenarios that don't favor them. You know, how, like, you can throw in, like, a contest champions or something like that to to kind of balance it out. So maybe we just need a larger ratio of, like, more, like, combat-oriented scenarios well, that, that, that's kind of what I mean, though, is like if, if you change the deployment option for these, suddenly yeah. it com- it becomes down to like player choice, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then it's like you're making a tactical decision. Oh, I made a mistake and I placed my warbands too far back and they have a shooting army. Okay, they're going to shoot me in pieces. Okay, I've learned that now I'll deploy up on the front line because that's like where I want to yeah. go, right? Yeah. Rather, whereas it's like right now it's like, no, you have to run these extra like two turns at me. Yeah. And I don't even have to like kite you around or do anything clever. I can just stand here. Yeah. Alexander, what were the what were the changes that you, you were wishing for next edition? What would I like changed? Well, I mean, honestly, you know, something I want to highlight is that all in all, the game as a whole, the rule set, I think it has shown over 20 years that this might be one of their best rule sets just because it really has not needed major changes throughout two decades of this game's existence. It's a pretty good rule set all in all. There's not a lot that I really go, this needs to change. Richard and Charles have really kind of brought out the things that I think might need to be kind of reeled back in a little bit prior to the next edition. Uh, But something that came to me, and I know we've said magic has been kind of pulled back a little bit this edition it's not quite as overpowering it doesn't take over an entire game 
And so maybe this would be too much of one of those kind of patch fixes that I had talked about earlier. You know, should there be a wider availability of something along the lines of resistance to magic for standard troops? You know, there's a lot of things that we like to pull in game where you have a spellcaster, like I've got a ring wraith, and I cast uh, compel on a random troop and I roll a five or a six, and it goes off automatically because that troop has no way to resist it and gets pulled out into a range where my opponent's line is now vulnerable. And typically that doesn't, you know, that's not something that's ever broken the game. It's not a major issue. It's just something that I thought of where I thought it's something that comes up in, you know, the Lord of the Rings, not just great heroes that create big moments and can do great deeds. You know, I think it's, I, I can't quote it directly right now, but essentially some of the greatest impacts can come from the smallest people. So why can't a single random troop get one die, for instance? I know there are some army bonuses and bonuses granted uh, by certain heroes where their troops will gain resistance to magic. And what do you guys think if like a troop got one kind of almost like a modified resistance to magic and of course they don't have might or will so they can't do more than that if the purpose of making this change is because you think compeller and mobilize is too powerful then i think it would be more simple to just up the cast value like because right now if you're thinking of giving everyone a resist roll then you're you're kind of just adding an extra action that you have to do. You know, every time it's kind of like armor saves in 40k. Every time someone gets wounded, you have to roll for a save. It's like an extra step. And mm-hmm. um, I think I think the way SPG is designed is all it's just like simplicity. Mm-hmm. And so like if you feel like those spells are too strong, then maybe propose like a higher cast value. That that would be the same. If if you want to math it out, it might be mm-hmm. the same. Personally, I think I'm fine with the cast values. Yeah, I don't but, think the cast yeah. values are really, really an issue. Like I said, ironically, that idea that I had earlier, very much like what I was saying, doesn't always work. So well, it was just a, it was it was a random thought. I thought might well, might well, be worth tinkering well, with. Everyone knows that like only the elves of Florian and the warriors of Numenor, uh, you know, are capable of great deeds. So hobbits have sense. resistance. Oh, then, yes. And that quote is where the quote yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that makes sense. It's uh, even the smallest person can change the course of the future. That's the quote I was looking for. It really was bugging me. I was like, I butchered the quote and I had to find it. Okay. So you've given me a thought, Alex. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, well, like maybe that changed the magic word. Maybe it would. But what about, how do you guys feel about letting um, auric buffs like, like you can resist orc buffs. So, like, let's say Kirden casts casts his aura of dismay, and I've got a hero nearby, and I say, okay, I'll spend some will points to try and like stop you from doing that. How do you guys feel about that? Because right now, orc buffs feel very, very powerful in the game. Yeah, I, I like the idea of that. To be honest, I don't. The orc buffs being exhaustion helps. So, like, they run out of will. That, that, that's kind of like turning off their buff is if you can get another caster to make them use all their will. The only one that I think it's like might be a little bit too easy and too powerful is blinding light. I think I think maybe instead of hitting on a six, 
it should be like a minus one to hit. I, I don't know. Cause I, I think that it's just too easy. You know, the, the caster just rolls a three plus channel it, and then they're basically immune from shooting for the whole game. Or how about this? You just change all the org buffs to the way that Fury used to be a long time ago, where if you got into a round of combat with the model who cast it, they lose their focus and then the spell dissipates. I actually like that. It also really made me protect my Urukai Shaman. It forces really a lot to... more careful play and a lot more yeah. thinking rather than let me turn on this like ability and then we'll just chill for a while. It's a also, huge nerf to Thranduil. Um, <laughs> yeah. And Alex, what was the other change you would like to see? If you guys didn't like the first one, you're really not going to like the second one. (laughs) (laughs) It only gets worse from here. Because it was something that I've seen in a lot of conversations online in recent weeks. And this is actually something I saw there. And I kind of merged it with an existing rule. And something I thought of was obviously we have rules like uh, the special rule in Rohan where... On turns they charge, they gain plus one strength, things like that. I was wondering was whether there should be additional bonuses to cavalry when they charge. Because there's situations that I've seen where, like, for instance, I play games against somebody who has a big cavalry contingency, and they charge in the first turn, and they do well. They wipe out, like, part a big chunk of my front line. But then the next turn, I win the heroic move off, of course. We've talked about this one already. And I get the charge... And, you know, I get countercharged them. I get two troops probably into each one of their cavalry. And the second that happens, it's as if I've just like wiped out a section of the cavalry because all of a sudden they can't match up to it. And I'm wondering if they should have something along the lines of perhaps um, the kind of impact hits that the war camels have with the big spikes where they either get a single, like, even something small, like a a strength two impact hit when they get into combat, or a strength one impact hit, just something that might uh, knock out the opponent they've hit, because they're going full speed on a horse, they hit something, they can potentially run it over, or if they win on a turn that they charge and they kill their initial target, they can move into the nearest next model. Again, very rough idea. I, I would yeah. say yes if you change the way horses work on heroes. Because heroes' horses don't need to be stronger now. Maybe troops, yeah, but... For instance, something I would think of would be like... like It would have to be a really weak hit. Like Obviously, you're not going to go with the, the strength 4 hit or whatever it is that the, the war camels get. Uh, but like a strength 1 or a strength 2, like nothing more powerful than a random bow. But it doesn't... It doesn't really address your problem of being pinned the next turn because the cavalry, you're dealing that blow on the turn that you charge, right? So mm-hmm. it doesn't really address your problem of them being countercharged and still being taken down. It's still, you're just making their initial charge more powerful. I understand you're proposing this change to make cavalry more realistic. And I'll agree that in, in this game, mounted models, the way they charge in, it's more like skirmishy cavalry. It's not like what you see in the movies in, in Return of the King. It's it's not, it's not like that. I don't think cavalry is designed to be realistic in that way. So right now, I think based on how they are, it's balanced. So if they were to do something like that, I feel like everything would have to change. So they would have to change like points costs. And also they might want to change like which factions get access to, to cavalry and which ones don't. Because I feel like that increases their utility as well. 
that would be a very big, like massive change to the whole game if they did something like that. That's something that I actually noted. I said, this may open a can of worms because, yeah, it was just an idea. I thought something that might work. But then again, we've had this conversation multiple times and I, I can appreciate for sure that obviously the way things work now are relatively well. And to, to make this change, to make this one aspect more realistic to perhaps what you see in the movies, it would dramatically alter a lot of other things. It's, the ideas I've had are very much kind of like, I like the initial thought, but what happens after that is like butterfly effect. You can't change the one thing without everything else in the game changing as well, which we don't want. Therefore, the can of worms. So basically, you just pulled a GW with the FAQs. I really just like, I tried to take a small problem and I ended up with a much bigger solution that didn't do what I wanted it to do. So yes, yeah, you're right. I I, I, I definitely, I, that's definitely what I've come up with here. Just, you know, no, don't, just, just. So I want to piggyback on this topic minutes. a little bit. Oh God, no, here we go. Oh, guys, stop. Because I would agree there should be changes to horses. I don't know about that change. What I'm thinking is like the way horses work with heroes because... I just think they're, like, way too cheap right now for what they do. I think we can all agree on that. Like, there's a reason we always say, oh, if you can take a horse, take a horse. The only model I can think of that's an exception to that is, like, Thranduil, because he gets insane buffs while being on foot. But even then, you're still probably going to take the horse of the elk, right? And, and it shouldn't be like that, because they are so cheap. I think that the easiest way to do it would be just to increase the points costs of horses by like 10 points or 15 points, right? It's like a big deal, right? You're not losing like one guy or one and a half guys. You're losing like three or four models. Yeah, I I definitely agree with that. Maybe decrease the cost of the hero and transfer it to the mount because yeah, um, yeah. certain like you, you never take LSR on foot unless you're playing Men of the West, which you won't. <laughs> Going with the Thranduil line of thought, like the reason why you kind of have more choice and you consider him on foot is because there's there's a downside. In a way, he's worse while mounted. So, you know, what if there's like when you're mounted, you're minus one fight value because it's like... Or minus one attack. Yeah. Well, then if it's too bad, then like you're not going to... I would say still have the same like hitting power just mm -hmm. so you can keep with Alex's theme of like you can still run people over and stuff, but... Like, the one less fight value I'm thinking is, like, you know, you're less steady on a horse. I, I mean, I don't know how exactly works with medieval combat with, like, a mounted soldier versus, like, on a foot one. But it could be that, like, you don't have as much control over your blade, you know, and you're just more relying on the, the physics of the horse charging in. Yeah, I like the way that works for heroes, but then you think of troops, and then all of a sudden the troops get so, so much worse. That's the issue with that. You'd have to make all like cavalry models like one higher fight value that are not heroes because otherwise they'd be they'd be garbage, right? Because like if you look at cavalry now that are fight three, yeah. they're, they're not great. Yeah, yeah. It'd be like taking taking the heroes and being like, all right, now these are balanced, but now no one wants to take troops on horses because they're all terrible. I think there is something there with that idea, though, Richard. I, I would agree. Like like you got to make it. It's just make it more of a choice. Like, anything in this game where it's like, oh, yeah, I should take that. There's no reason not to. Yeah, that should be changed. I think, the yeah, the cost of mounts could go up. That way, you you know, it's it's a 
an actual army building decision. And for increasing mount costs, it, it, it shouldn't even be a flat fee kind of thing. It should be, I think, variable, you know, like a percentage of the hero's cost or something. Because, yeah, yeah you like could a, probably based off the number of attacks they have, honestly. Yeah, like for like a one attack hero, you make them like what, what they used to be like, like what a standard model is like six points. Yeah, yeah. But then for like a two attack hero, it's like 15 points. And then maybe like a three attack hero, it's like 20 or 25 points or something yeah. like that. Or maybe a two yeah. attack hero, it's 20 points and then 30 points for a three attack hero. Yeah. Because it, it is like, it does like, it stacks up. It, it, it should scale. skills yeah. insane, yeah. Do we then have to factor in like fight value the way Richard talked about heroic actions? Because like a fight six two attack or three attack hero is going to win more combats in those situations than a fight five hero is. So then do you have to balance in like what the fight value is or include that in how they're affected? Like it's, I don't know if I would go that far. Yeah. The reason I was just saying you go to attacks is because that just really increases your damage output so much. That's what Mm -hmm. the main thing impact of a horse is. So that's why you, that's why you make it cost more. I think this is a good place to uh, end our open topic today. It, it is a pretty big topic with a lot of points that we each have come up with. So listeners, let us know if you would like to see a second part to this where we discuss more changes that we'd like to see. Uh, but today we've just brought up a few of the things that we thought of. Regardless, thank you all for listening and look forward to the next episode of Into the West podcast.